Well, good morning, church. My name is Pastor Trevor. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and it's an honor to be able to spend time with you this morning. Uh, we are wrapping up our sermon series this morning, um, Summer Road Trip, and I'm a little bit sad about it. And to be honest, the biggest reason is because I don't get to go to these cool places anymore uh, and have a reason to go and film and eat good food and eat ice cream, of course. Um, but it's been a really, really great series. I hope you all have enjoyed it. Um, uh, the reason I think this series has been so important... Oh, cool, yeah. Good, thank you. <laughs> No, it's been, it's been a ton of fun, and not just because I've gotten to go to these cool places, but also I think it's really important that we as a church understand the whole story of the Bible, not just pieces and parts, but what this story tells us from the very beginning all the way to the very end. Because understanding the whole Bible, it gives us buckets, if you will, to put things in as we learn them, as God teaches us and he grows us. If we understand the whole story, it helps us make sense of each and every part along the way. And we see this story as God being so gracious, full of compassion, love, and mercy that he would continually pursue us from the very beginning to the very end. And so this morning, as we open up uh, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, we're going to be looking at kind of uh, the way this story ends and seeing what it means for us today, what it means for us in the future as well. We're going to end this uh, story, the entire Bible, in a city. And as you know, in the video you just saw, we ended up in Charleston, which is a great place to go. And I love one of the things that we talked about, that Charleston is one of those cities that, that has a past to it. And not all that past is good. And that past has kind of created who Charleston is today. When you go and visit, you can feel it all along the way. And the truth is, in the Bible, there's a past to the Bible, to the Scriptures as well, and not all of it is good. Some of it is very painful, full of sorrow, full of difficulty. And the good news is, at the very end of the Bible, we see how this all comes together and culminates in this holy city. But to truly understand the end today, I think it's important for us to go back and look at the very beginning one more time. Week one of this series, we began in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And we begin in a garden, and it's where we have to begin this morning to really get perspective for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, if you follow me on social media at all, on Facebook, Instagram, whatever it might be, you might have seen recently that my family went on a road trip of our own uh, to Kentucky and then to Indiana. And there's nothing I love more than traveling 10 plus hours on the interstate with my wife and my three lovely children. And it always feels like a really good idea until like Spartanburg, and you're like, oh, what have we done? Only a little bit further. Uh, we went to Kentucky, though, and finally made it there, and we saw family, and one of my oldest best friends just moved back to Wilmore, Kentucky, and so I got to spend time with him. I showed my family where I go to seminary, Asbury Theological Seminary, and we kind of stomped around, went to Irish Acres and some different places. It was a great place to go and visit, and we saw friends and family. Then we drove on up to Indiana after that the next day, and we went to uh, my hometown of Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, we ate at a place called Dog and Suds, which I went to when I was a kid, hot dogs and Frosty Mo Group Mirrors, I'm not going to lie, or. Uh, try to cover it up three times in about a day and a half, and it was so good every single time. And we went to my 20-year high school reunion, which I know I don't look that old, but it's true. 20 years since I graduated from high school, spent time with friends there as well, just catching up. And then we went to my grandparents' farm, and my cousins came to visit. We were all there just laughing and reminiscing. And the best thing about that house, no one lives there anymore on the farm, but it is set up just like it was when my grandparents were both there. And all the things that I remember as a kid are all there, perfectly intact and in place. We looked through photo books and pictures. We laughed. We, we cried, seeing pictures of my grandmother in the house, and just had a really great time connecting with one another. And then on Sunday before we came home, I went to my home church, the place that I grew up. And the pastor who is at that church now is the, the guy who preached at the camp I went to junior year of high school when I received the call into ministry. And so Sunday morning, I got to go to him and just say thank you. 
thank you for investing in people because I'm a product of, of what God has done through you. I want to thank you for that. There's something about taking a road trip back into time, back into our roots, back into where we've come from, the very beginning, that gives perspective to everything else in our life. Something about going back to look at pictures and visiting home and that kind of thing, it gives perspective to everything else that we experience. Because I believe perspective in life comes from visiting where everything began. I think that it shows us things that we otherwise would have missed along the way. I think it gives us context to certain situations and circumstances we might find ourselves in today. And in the end, I think it gives us hope for how things will end um, in the very end. So before we ever end up in Revelation, this city in Revelation, we began in a garden in Genesis. And the Bible begins with God creating everything that we know and see and everything we don't know, everything we don't see. He makes it all. He creates it through his spoken word and eventually he creates humanity to share it with by forming us from the dust of the ground and breathing his very life into us. And as God creates all these things, if you know the beginning of the story, we talked about it a few weeks ago, as God creates everything, there's a cadence that begins to happen. After he creates something, he says, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. Over and over and over again, God speaks with approval of all that he's created. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, this is where I really want to begin this morning. God says something after he's created everything that I think really puts a stamp on the very beginning of this story. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God says this. God saw all that he had made and he said it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God looks over all of his creation. Every river, every stream, every mountain, every valley, every tiny sparrow, every massive elephant, every man, every woman. And he says, it is very good. And this is a place that I want to camp for just a second here this morning. Because I think this is a word that we need to hear today. I think all of us in the room, we are well acquainted with, with the life that we live now that begins seemingly in Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters the world and everything is broken and corrupt. But you have to understand the first word spoken over creation, the first word spoken over you is it is very good. There's something about what God has created in each and every one of us and the creation that we see around us that God says it is very good and he never took it back. And this is where everything begins. To really understand where we're going here in the end, you have to understand this is where it all starts. My family this summer uh, bought a two-foot deep swimming pool, 12 feet in diameter. I didn't want to. My wife said we're doing it, and so we did. And we brought it home, and we set it up out in the yard. And uh, it's probably quite a sight watching my whole family, including myself and my wife, now float in floaties. I promised I would not do it, but in fact, I am doing it. Sitting in a float in two feet of water, 12 feet wide, all my children jumping and screaming around me. It's like, it's kind of hilarious, actually. Um, but the good thing is the water gets very warm because there's not a lot of it. And so we, we were floating recently on a hot summer day. And my son, my oldest, disappeared out of nowhere and left the rest of us outside. So we thought, well, he's probably inside playing games or doing something. And about 30 minutes later, he came back out of the house and he had this huge tray. And my wife loves charcuterie. Any ladies in the room? Any men in the room, right? Cheese, meat, fruit, you name it, all. He came out with this tray and he had been for the past 30 minutes finding everything he could find in the kitchen and making a charcuterie tray to come out and share with, with my wife and, and me, I'm sure. And so he comes walking out 
with all this stuff, pickles, and there's like fruit on it and cheese. and I mean, everything you could find, just like piling it on. And as he came out, you could see a huge smile on his face. He was so proud of putting this whole thing together. It was all perfectly placed on the tray, and he, he couldn't believe that he put it all together. And so he's walking out to us, and we're like, what is that? He's like, ah. And all of a sudden, as he gets closer and closer, this tray was so heavy, it began to kind of lean forward. And all of a sudden, before he could get to us, before anybody could get there to help him, the whole tray dumped over and everything fell on the ground. I know, so he was heartbroken. I mean, tears instantly began to well up in his eyes, and he was so sad. He spent so much time making this to come and share it with Jenna and so forth, and there it was now all over the grass. It actually took quite a bit of time to calm him down and go back inside and make a little bit more so we could sit and enjoy it. He was really sad. And there's a certain sadness, a certain pain, a certain sorrow that comes from the destruction of a perfect creation. When so much work and effort goes into something and, and it seemingly falls apart, there's a lot of pain and sorrow and difficulty there. And though the story starts with God saying everything is good, it, it, the Bible calls it shalom, perfect peace, everything in its place, everything in balance. Genesis chapter 3 introduces something new into the world as we disobey God and decide we're going to live life our own way. And we introduce into creation sin. And if you know the story of the Bible, sin begins to run rampant and it breaks everything. It breaks all of creation and it breaks you and it breaks me. And because of sin, the Bible says there's a fourfold shattering of this shalom, a fourfold shattering of this peace that existed. It takes place in four very important parts. The first one is this there's a destruction and a shattering when it comes to our relationship with ourself. The way we see ourselves, there are maybe probably many here this morning that when you look in the mirror, you do not see a child of God. You see a flawed creature. You see someone who never does it right, who always makes mistakes. You don't see something that is very good, but you see something that is very broken. Our relationship with others, the way we relate to one another is, is deteriorated to a very dangerous level political tensions, personal tensions, all kinds. We find ourselves at odds in the home, at odds in the workplace, at odds in the classroom. We have a broken relationship to those around us. Also, our relationship to creation is shattered. Jeff shared with us week one that God gave us purpose and meaning with all he's created, and he asked us to steward it and take it someplace, but instead we stole it, we abuse and mismanage it. And lastly, but most importantly, our relationship with God has been shattered. We don't see him as God with authority in our lives. Instead, we decide we want to be our own gods. And guess what? We're not very good gods. Fourfold shattering of shalom. As sin enters the world, it breaks it apart in all kinds of ways. And the rest of the story of Scripture that we've been walking through the past couple weeks is God going to great lengths to restore his creation once again to relationship with him, relationship with one another, relationship with self, and relationship with creation itself. So we visited the first place, a trip to the mountain, as God gives the Ten Commandments to his people. And he says to them, if you live in covenant relationship with me, I'll live in covenant relationship with you. And then we took a trip to the capital where we saw the people reject God as king, and God still said to them, I will make you a special possession if you live in covenant relationship with me. And then we see Jesus himself come and walk along the seas of Galilee and find disciples and invite them to come and follow him and be in relationship with him once again. It's no longer a national kind of invitation, it's a personal one. And then lastly, we saw this on full display as Jesus Christ was crucified on the tree. 
And he gave up his life to restore our relationship to God, to forgive us of our sin and make us right with him. You see, we have to begin here because unless we acknowledge the fact that we have sinned personally, that we are a part of a system that is sinful and flawed, then we will never see ourselves in need of a restoration and a rescue. Unless we see the world as a broken place, we will never see it in need of rescue and the gospel and the hope of Jesus. We'll never see it that way. Because here's what, my friends, we cannot vote our way out of this mess. We cannot legislate our way out of this mess. We will never will our way out of this mess. It's not how this works. We need Jesus. We need him. He's the one who rescues us. And unless we can acknowledge that, we'll never see him and what he's truly done for us. We will never see God's attempt to make relationship with us once again. Because restoration that Jesus brings, it has to at least match the scope of what has been broken. It has to at least match the fourfold shattering of creation, at least. And so what Jesus has done for us has to restore that broken shalom, that broken peace that started in Genesis. My wife and I, we uh, recently finished our remodel of our home. I don't think you ever actually finish a remodel, right? Any guys in the room? Like it just kind of goes on perpetually. There's always something to fix. But we've done a lot. I mean, we, we have brought it a long way from where we first kind of got our hands on it. But I'll never forget the first part of our restoration that we had done a lot. We had scraped ceilings, we had painted things, we had restored floors, we had done a lot of stuff, new carpet, you name it, all these different places. But there was one place in our home that we had not touched, that's where we first moved in right before Christmas this past year, and that was our kitchen. And it was rough. Uh, there was a hole in the wall, I, I think I'm actually the one that put the hole there, but we didn't fix it until much, much later. Uh, the floors were actually really sloped and things didn't work in the kitchen as they should. It was just kind of a, a nasty place in the midst of all this restoration that had taken place around it within the home. And there was this sense that until we do this, until we hit this part too that's in need of restoration, the restoration work is not done. And the same thing is true for what Jesus Christ did in coming to the cross. He didn't come just to forgive your sin. Oftentimes when we talk about Christ's death on the cross, we talk about it in terms of our sin and it being paid for, as if that's the only thing he came to do. And it's not. The restoration work of Jesus has to at least match the fourfold shattering of shalom. It has to at least match the brokenness that ensued in the very beginning so the restorative work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, yes, addresses our sin personally. But it restores us to seeing ourselves the way he sees us. It restores our relationship with others around us, the injustices we see around us. It restores the way we interact with his creation. And it restores our relationship to him. I heard a pastor one time say this, if Jesus didn't come and die for the spotted owl, he didn't die for me. Meaning, all of creation is groaning for restoration, not just you and I. And Jesus came to take care of all of it. That is good news. That is good news. And that's the story of the Bible that we see from beginning to end. And so throughout the Bible, there is this hope, this constant promise that is reiterated over and over again, that one day God would send someone who would come and make all things right and put pieces back in place and restore what has been broken. And it's a now and not yet kind of situation. There are things that Jesus' death and resurrection have done now, but guess what? There's more to come. It's not finished yet. There's more to come. 
The gospel changes everything, but there's much more to come. You see, one of the disciples of Jesus named John, he writes the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. Maybe you've read Revelation before. Maybe it left you a little bit stunned, a little bit confused at what was going on. But let me explain just a little bit. John is writing this book as he's in exile on an island called Patmos. This is not a resort. This is not a time away on vacation. He's in exile. And the reason he's there is because of what he has been saying about his testimony about who Jesus is. It's a punishment. And so John finds himself here on the island of Patmos, and he's writing what the Bible says are revelations about who God is. So this book, Revelation, in the Greek literally means unveiling. John is unveiling the purpose and plan of God all the way to the very end. And this book is full of apocalyptic fashion of, of words, symbolic and confusing language. But there is one unmistakable message that exists throughout the entire book. And I think it sums up the entire book of Revelation, yes, but also the entire Bible. Here in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read this for you. Revelation 21 says this. John writes, Then I saw as a revelation a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, which is where Jesus is seated, sitting, saying this, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. John says, here's what I saw. He has just for the first 21 chapters talked about Jesus, this, this slain lamb who is now on the throne in the entire world. Everyone is kneeling to, before the throne of Jesus, worshiping him as a true king. And then John says in chapter 21, here's what else I see. I see that this new city, he calls it the holy city. How appropriate for Charleston, right? The holy city coming down from heaven and resting on the earth and making his dwelling among the people. God once again is dwelling among those who love him. I want you to notice the language here. Oftentimes when we talk about heaven, when we talk about what's to come in the end, we talk about it with escapist kind of language. We'll get out of here one day. This place is such a mess. We'll, we'll leave this place one day. We will leave. No, no, it sounds to me like this holy city comes to us. This is good news. We don't have to work our way out of this. He comes to us to make his dwelling among us once again. This is why we pray every single Sunday morning on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And in Revelation 21, this is exactly what happens. The holy city descends. To really understand what John is trying to say here in the story from beginning to end, we have to understand that sin is about disintegration. But the cross is about integration. Sin, brokenness is about disintegration. It's a, it's a pulling apart, a breaking of relationship that has left every single one of us at odds with our creator. All of creation at odds to the creator. But the cross is about integration, bringing things back together by God's love, grace, mercy, compassion, pursuit. 
I'd never read the whole Bible until I came to CIU, Columbia International University. I read parts of it. I'd been in church for a long time, so I'd heard parts of it many, many times. But to actually graduate from CIU, I had to read the whole Bible. I'm glad to do it, but I'd never done it before. It actually took a long time to, to finish up for me. But I remember reading through the whole Bible, and I remember for the first time seeing the whole picture and being kind of frustrated. Because reading the Old Testament and hearing God speak to his people and doing miracles like parting seas and pillars of fire, pillars of smoke, I was like, I want to be in the Old Testament. I want to experience God like that. I don't see any of that stuff. I don't experience it like that. And then as you read through the Old Testament, you get to the New Testament. Now God all of a sudden in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, is walking among the people, healing people, restoring people's sight. They can touch him, feel him, see him. I want, I want that. Old Testament would be awesome. I want Jesus though in the flesh. I want to be there in the New Testament as he's walking among the people. That must have been amazing. God in the flesh right here before us. And as I read through that story, Jesus dies. He resurrects from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He says, I must because I'm going to send you someone, the helper, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now comes and dwells inside of people. And I remember thinking, what a ripoff. Like, I would have much rather had Old Testament God or Jesus in the flesh God. And we just get this other God somehow that we can't see or touch. But then I began to realize this story of the Bible is actually God getting closer and closer and closer to his people. See, the Old Testament says you can't see God. If you do, you'll die. That's not good. And in Jesus, you have God in the flesh, but he's limited to one space. He's walking the Middle Eastern roads in one space. But now we have the Holy Spirit of God. Don't miss this living and dwelling inside of us. He doesn't get closer than that. And it seems to be in line with what John is talking about here in Revelation 21. In the very end, here's the good news. God will come and dwell with his people. He will be as close as he could possibly be to us. He doesn't stand somewhere far off, but instead he comes to our mess to make things right. And Jesus' work on the cross is a way for God to come and dwell with us forever. No longer any barrier of sin or hindrance to our relationship. But this holy city of God is a restoration of shalom, a restoration of peace. What began in the garden culminates in the city. And the outcome of this arrival is something that I believe we all truly long for deep within ourselves. John goes on to write then in verse 4 to explain further what takes place when he arrives. He says, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You see this city of God, as God comes to dwell among his people, here's the greatest promise of all. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no sickness, no death, no loss of the things that have a bit of an edge to them in the life that we live that leave us numb, these past things, devastating earthquakes in Haiti, children sold into human trafficking, the pain of cancer, the pain of saying a final goodbye to someone you love, wars, hatred, pandemics, racism, injustice, sickness, you name it. When God comes to dwell among his people, the first thing he does is he wipes the tears from our eyes. 
And he promises, no longer will this be a part of the world that you live in. And here's why. Because the old order of things is now gone. Sin and death no longer have the last word and the final say. But Jesus comes to make all things right. And this is the vision that John writes down as he sees what's taking place here, how this story ends. And then he says this, not only is this a present reality for us, but it's also having future implications for us. What Christ has done on the cross has effect for us right now. Meaning you don't have to live in disobedience to God any longer. The consequences of sin, they don't have any hold on you anymore. The, the, the present implication, the present reality is that you don't have the power of sin ruling over you any longer if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You've been freed. You've been freed. And you can live a different kind of way. That's good news. But here's the best news. It's not just for right now, it's also for all of eternity. See, there are many things that are said within the scriptures about our eternity, what happens after our life expires here on earth. There are a lot of interpretations as far as what it might be like, how it takes place, what's, what's next. But here's what I know from sh for sure, and I believe this passage speaks to it. When we live as followers of Jesus in covenant relationship with God, after our time on earth is over, we are in the presence of God, free from pain and suffering. This means those in the room who have lost loved ones in Christ, they are free from pain and suffering. Every tear has been wiped from their eyes. Though we may still mourn, they no longer mourn. They live with him forever. In this holy city, as God comes down to dwell with us, all of us, alongside of them, will experience a bodily resurrection. Things will be made right, restored to the way God first intended. Death does not win. Sin does not win. Jesus wins. And what was broken in the garden will be restored in this holy city. The message we receive from John's book is a message of hope. I mean, truthfully, the Bible ends with a powerful hope for those who are left here right now and certainly for those who have gone before us. This hope is, is an anchor for our souls right now, but it's also a tow rope for our restoration. Future hope is an anchor for our souls, but it's also a tow rope into restoration, what God is trying to do within us. I read an interesting story this week in preparation for today, and it's a story about some researchers, some scientists who were doing experiments on the effects of hope when undergoing hardship. What they had done is they had taken two different sets of lab rats, and they placed them into these tubes full of water. And the one set of lab rats were in this water, and they were treading water as long as they could, and they treaded water for an hour before they drowned. Not good to be a lab rat. Now, the other lab rats were also in a tube full of water as well. And what the researchers did was periodically they would come in, and they would pull them up out of the water, and they would let them back into the water again, up out of the water, back into the water again, over and over again. Those rats swam for 24 hours. 24 hours. And what the researchers found out was what they had given to the rats was not a rest between an hour to 24 hours. What they had given them was such a, something much more important. They had given them hope. If we can just tread a little bit longer, rescue's coming. If we can keep it up a little bit longer, someone's coming to rescue us. You see, what, the, what, what is talked about in Revelation 21 is, is true hope for the future. 
And for those of us as Christians who are sitting in here this morning, maybe for some of us, we feel like we've been treading water for a long time. I can't keep it up. I can't do it anymore. Part of what future hope does helps us say, oh, I can do it one more day. I can do it again. I can do it again. Because rescue is coming. Restoration is coming. And it holds our souls down. As we live in this life that tosses us back and forth like waves, as we have a hard time keeping the faith, as we have a hard time being faithful, man, hope is the thing that anchors our souls. But it doesn't just anchor us, it also pulls us into the fullness of God. If I trust and believe that finally this holy city will come, God will come and dwell among us, he will make all things right, then I want to see God do in me now what he's going to do in me then. I want to live into the fullness that God has for me right now, believing and trusting that he will finish it when he comes to dwell among us in the very end. It's an anchor for our souls, this future hope, but it also pulls us into restoration, what God is doing in the world. John writes this in the very next chapter, chapter 22. Almost the very end of the Bible, 22 verses 1 through 3, John says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Have you heard of that before? The same tree in Genesis that introduced death into the world. This tree now, this tree of life introduces life. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Verse 3 is the key to the entire thing. You have this first tree that introduces death. You have a second tree that introduces healing and life. And if you look at verse 3, I believe you'll find a, a sum of the entire book of Revelation, a sum of the entire Bible when it says this, And then the curse will be broken. What curse? It's the curse that's introduced through sin. It's the promise that we receive in Genesis 3 that one day someone would come and and he would crush the head of the serpent even though he would strike his heel. It's the curse that has run through our veins for a very long time that has been the destructive agent all around us. That curse is broken because of Jesus. That curse is broken as God comes to dwell among his people within the holy city. When Jesus took it upon himself, the curse of sin and death, and he broke it by resurrecting from the dead. One of the most moving stories I've ever read within a book came from a book called Ragamuffin Gospel, written by a guy named Brennan Manning. And he tells this story about a young couple, and the wife in this couple was diagnosed with cancer. And she had a tumor in her face, and they had gone to the doctors, and the doctor said, listen, we're going to try to do everything we can. We're going to try to save your life. We're going to have to do surgery. We're going to have to remove this tumor. But the problem is we're afraid that to do this, if we even save your life, we may have to cut some nerves in your face that may cause one side of your face to droop forever. There'll be nothing we can do about it. So the couple debated and they decided we need to do the surgery. There's, there's hope that we can be healed, so we need to do the surgery. And so Brennan Manning writes that they do this surgery, but despite all efforts, the nerve was cut on one side of the woman's face and it drooped. Her mouth was broken and misshapen. The woman asked if it would always be this way. Yes, the doctor said. 
But before the wife could even shed a tear, the husband looked at her and he said, I like it. It's kind of cute. And then he bowed down beside her bed, took her face within his hands. And the doctor recounts that as he watched this young husband break his lips to match hers, and he kissed her broken mouth to show that their love could still work. See, the end of the story, the end of the Bible, speaks of this man, Jesus, who went to the cross and who broke his body and he shed his blood to match our broken bodies, to show us that relationship with God, the, the love between creator and creation could still work. He restored us through his sacrifice. This is an appropriate last stop on our road trip because from this overlook right here, we can see the end. And it's a happy ending. It ends good. It ends in the way God first intended, with everything right. No tears in our eyes, no pain, no sorrow, no death. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we come before you this morning. God, I just ask that you would instill in our hearts, instill in my heart, God, a dogged trust, a faith that you are coming to rescue us. That what Christ has done for us now has freed us from the power of sin and death and what Christ will do in us one day will make us brand new. So God, I pray for those here today who are facing pain and sorrow and loss, sickness and unrest. I pray, God, you would give them peace. Would you give them shalom? Would you help them know, God, that you've come to dwell among your people because you care for us and you love us? And would you give us a hope that one day we will no longer face the trials of this world, but one day you will come and make all things right? Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your continual invitation to live in covenant relationship with you. I pray today, God, we would choose you once again and that that might give us hope. It's in your name that we pray and everyone said, amen.